Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And in this episode, I'm talking to Isabel Hardwick about mental health, orchids and cycling. I first got to know Isabel Hardman as Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator magazine. That meant she was a pretty tough journalist in the world of politics that I operated in. But I was really moved to talk to her when I read her candid account of her fight back from really severe mental health difficulties in her book, The Natural Health Service. And that's where I got to know that she was an enthusiastic cyclist and a lover of orchids. We had a really fascinating conversation, and most importantly, I should say, Isabel is a new mom, and she had the baby in her arms throughout the interview, so if you hear any snuffling, that's the new baby. Isabel, obviously the first question I'm going to ask is, how are you and how's the new baby? We're fine, yes. Obviously, I haven't had a great deal of sleep over the past four weeks. But no, I'm, I'm very much enjoying being a mum, probably more than I thought I would. I sort of assumed that I'd be completely useless at it and would hate it. And I'm not sure whether I'm any good at it, but I am very much enjoying it. The centre of the universe shifts when you have a baby. Your first one is obviously you can't believe every second unfolding. But are you getting through the sleepless nights and all the things that you read about in books? How are you coping with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I was really apprehensive about it because of my mental health problems. And I've had a lot of extra support from the maternity side of things and from the psychiatric side of things as a result of that. And I've been really careful about trying to top up on sleep during the day as much as I possibly can. In a sense, lockdown has been quite helpful for that because my partner's around so he can take baby off me in the morning so I can catch up on a bit more sleep because sleep deprivation does tend to exacerbate for me my mental health problems so um, that's been my main focus really I've, I've been basically living like the baby I've been eating sleeping and, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> I was going to do sleep later but now you mention it because on my health journey I realised that sleep was actually central to everything I, I used to say there were four pillars of health nutrition well-being exercise and sleep and now I think there's three pillars of health and they're built on a foundation of sleep and if you don't have sleep everything else goes and you've obviously because I've read uh, we're going to talk about your book in a bit but I mean sleep to you is obviously central was that creating a sort of fear before the baby came that you lose your sleep patterns and all of that yeah absolutely and talking to uh, lots of people for the book uh, I realized how important sleep was in in maintaining good mental health, even for people with, with very severe conditions. For instance, bipolar disorder, 
I was talking to someone who works with people with that illness and they were saying that for a lot of patients actually they can ward off manic episodes by having a bit of extra sleep not always the case but it's the same with depression actually that having a good amount of sleep can actually be more powerful than a mild antidepressant and so that was something that I I definitely noticed over the past four years was that when I'm sleep deprived my mental health goes awry pretty quickly the good thing the one thing I'm really fortunate in in being able to do is I've always been like a cat in that I can just sleep at any time of the day and wherever I am and I know lots of other people will, will hugely resent me for saying that but it does mean that the mantra sleep when baby sleeps is something I can actually obey. So, you know, if it's nine o'clock in the morning or three in the afternoon, I can just go and catch up on sleep for an hour or so. And that makes all the difference. And I know lots of people find that really hard. Um, so I've been incredibly lucky in that respect. Do you have any other sleep routines? Do you black out your curtains or stop looking at your tablets and devices before sleep? No, <laughs> I, know, I know that sleep hygiene is really important. At the moment, I'm so tired that as soon as I lie down, I go to sleep. <laughs> Actually, the routine is more the staying awake routine for me at the moment. It's really various tricks so that I don't fall asleep while feeding baby. But no, I know sleep hygiene is important, but I've always been able to sleep even... You know, I don't draw the curtains when I have a nap during the day. I'm giving all sorts of bad advice here. Lots of people should not do what I do, basically. <laughs> the one thing I know about parenting is there's no right way. You just no. <laughs> get on with it and the baby tells you what to do. Yeah. Exactly. And what about your, I mean, I love your book. I mean, the name, The Natural Health Service, that's very resonant with me. And there must be millions of other people that find it. But, you know, you say in the book, there's a sort of undercurrent, you're always attentive to physical exercise mm. and, you know, a six mile run. I mean, you couldn't obviously do that, presumably, certainly in the last bit of your pregnancy. How's your physical exercise doing? Are you managing to sort of get a routine for that? Yeah, I mean, I can't do much exercise at the moment because I only gave birth four weeks ago. So I'm still in the recovery period, but I cannot wait to get back on my bike and to get running again. And I know that both are going to be quite uncomfortable to begin with is as you say towards the end of my pregnancy I could do indoor cycling but I couldn't run because my pelvis basically gave up at about 22 weeks and uh, up to that point I was still doing park runs while pregnant but there does come a point where your joints and your bump are just prohibiting that from from happening so I'm really looking forward to being able to go back to some of my old coping mechanisms that were denied to me during pregnancy and that I really missed particularly when I found in, in the later stages of pregnancy that my mental health was going downhill again because I'd got so used to thinking, ah, oh, I'm feeling really low, I can go out for a six mile run. Well, you, you just can't do that when you're, you know, when you're 32 weeks pregnant, for instance. And also lockdown made a big difference as well, because I couldn't go cold water swimming because all the London cold water swimming spots closed and you couldn't travel to exercise to begin with. And so I haven't swum since I think late February or early March and I've really really missed that so that's another thing I'm, I'm desperate to get back into again. Cold water swimming is something that I definitely want to explore with you. There's a bit in the book where you say um, you dipped in the cold water pool and then your partner when you climbed out said it's like having my easy back. Yeah. <laughs> the, the impact was so dramatic on you. Yeah. What is it with cold water swimming that's so impactful? I think it's basically it's the shock of the cold. It's sort of like almost a natural electric shock treatment that resets your feelings. I think also even in warmer weather when the water, to my mind, isn't cold at all, you still get the sensation of, of being held by the water and of feeling weightless. And I think that's really powerful when you're in the middle of a bad patch with your mental health. It just seems to stretch my mind out and return it in better shape by the end of the swim 
when it's cold, the shock of the cold water is believed, according to scientists who've been studying this, to help us tame our fight or flight response. And that's something that, for me, when I'm particularly unwell, that goes pretty crazy. And I can end up being incredibly frightened or quite angry, um, often with random people who've got nothing to do with my reasons for being angry, which is quite inconvenient and embarrassing. And so because you're getting into cold water, it shocks your body and you're then having to deal with that. And you're natural response would be to to run away but actually you're taming it and you're learning to then start swimming that has a knock-on effect not just on you instantly as you're in the water and experiencing bad mental health and starting to, to sort of calm down but cumulatively over weeks and months you notice since I've started doing cold water swimming and I've been doing it for two years now that my ability to tame that fight or flight response when I'm on dry land it is much better as well. So I'm able to cope with stressful situations much better. And I'll give you an example. Um, I'd say about a year, a couple of years ago, if this situation had happened to me, it would have taken me about two or three days to recover from it. But I was out walking my dog yesterday and another man's dog started fighting my dog who did stand up for himself, I have to say. But the man's way of dealing with this was to kick my dog. And uh, I got very angry with him and said, please don't kick my dog. And he told me I should have had my dog on a lead, even though his wasn't on a lead. Unfortunately, some other walkers chipped in and started having a go at this man for getting around kicking random dogs. But previously, that kind of thing with a man shouting at me and telling me I'd done something wrong when I hadn't done anything wrong would have caused a big, long flashback that would have lasted for a few hours. And then I would have been exhausted and emotional for a few days. Actually, yesterday, I was just like, what a stupid man and carried on my walk and my dog was completely unperturbed and went and jumped into a muddy stream <laughs> and I think that was his way of distracting me from the problem because <laughs> I now had a bigger muddier problem to deal with but it's little things like that just not suddenly escalating into this big fight response or getting incredibly upset and frightened that's massive because it makes everyday life easier it makes going to work and you know having a dispute with a colleague or maybe even a politician a bit easier to deal with as well it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fight or flight responses are uh, quite a big deal to me as well. I think my fight or flight responses were triggered far too many times in my first 10, 15 years in Parliament. And I, I mean, I understand that term to be literally cortisol control. Yeah. You're thought processes are triggered and then there's a physical response yeah. that actually is chemical 
yeah you know you've got a shoot of cortisol coming through your body that's where you get the kind of shakiness from and it really that's what sort of hardens your arteries and when you're a 22 stone politician you definitely don't want your arteries <laughs> being hard so it just has such a physical impact on you in a visible way as well because you obviously don't notice your arteries hardening but at I did when I was particularly ill. My shoulders got so tense that I couldn't actually turn my head for a while. Wow. <laughs> I had to get a sports massage man to come and unlock my shoulders so that I could just sort of look around. So it, it is amazing the, the physical impact that stress has, even in a kind of tangible way, let alone internally in a way that we don't appreciate until we start getting really physically sick. And it seems to me that the way you described the incident yesterday, it's like you've almost mentally banked to win there you've managed to sort of compare an incident and understand what the response would have been when you were more ill, even though it was a traumatic experience. Is that part of the sort of retraining yourself in a sense to deal with different daily experiences? Yeah. And that's, that doesn't just come from all the physical exercise that I talk about. That's also come from basically doing therapy for four years as well, where you start to learn to look at a situation and say, why did I react in that way? What was actually going on? You know, what, was I actually angry with that random person who tried to have a conversation with me about kingfishers or was there something deeper going on? <laughs> Am I angry with someone else by proxy? And, and that's been very useful. It's, it's a painful and at times quite annoying process and it's definitely not complete in any way. I'm, I'm sure that now I've spoken to you in the next few days, something will happen that will send me crazy again and I'll sit there thinking, damn it, I completely missed that one. <laughs> but uh, you start to learn to identify things better through having proper therapy and I've been very lucky to have access to the therapy either through my own ability to afford it privately because the NHS waited so long or actually once I got pregnant, there's a huge amount of funding for maternal mental health, which I've really benefited from over the past few months and still benefiting from now. It sounds to me like, you know, that you kind of almost there's a gratitude and an inner strength for you being able to talk about the sort of techniques you've been using to, dare I use the word resilience, increase resilience, would you describe it as that? Yeah, I mean, I think resilience is really important generally for mental health. And I'm not just talking about mental illness, but people's general mental health in the same way as we talk about, you know, physical health, even if you don't have a diagnosed physical condition. One of the things that I've had to learn is that actually the world isn't going to change because I've got sick. So, you know, I've got various things that I'm still hung up about, but the world is going to continue in exactly the way that it was before I got ill, before these things became an issue. And having therapy, taking antidepressants, doing all the sort of exercise, self-care that I try to do, that's my way of trying to cope with the reality of the world rather than getting angry that the world isn't going to accommodate me and my illness. And that's quite a difficult realization because you sort of hope that you know that people are going to be kind and mindful around you and, and often they are particularly now but things are going to send you mad in a way that lots of people wouldn't expect and certainly some of the fights and things I've got upset about over the years have been triggered by something so random that even a kind person wouldn't have predicted they were going to happen so yes resilience and learning to deal with those situations is a really important part of recovery and being able to live the best life you can while being sick and there's a beautiful bit in the book where i mean the whole book is talking about you being closer to nature and part of your recovery was being able to distinguish between colt's foot stitchwort and ladies smock flowers which 
I can't <laughs> imagine many people have even heard of, let alone could distinguish between. Just tell me a little bit about that, because I think that's beautiful. Well, plants have always been a massive passion of mine. I you know, had a misspent adolescence where I was just really into gardening. And it's really nice now I'm in my 30s, all my friends are coming to me saying, Izzy, how do I grow tomatoes? And Izzy, I really want to plant this plant. I think finally, you spent years mocking me and now you want to be like me. I get the last laugh. But when I got sick, I started to use plants to distract me from being unwell because a lot of what was going on when I was acutely ill, when I was off sick, was I was suffering from ruminations, which is when you have the same thoughts and questions going round and round in your head on a sort of washing and spin cycle without any useful conclusion. So you're often trying to solve a problem in your mind, but you never get any further than the problem itself. And it, I mean, it, it does drive you mad. I remember being on my way to the results programme for the EU referendum in 2016, and I was in the car on the way to the studio. And instead of thinking is Britain going to leave the European Union? All I could think about was a problem in my personal life that was just going round and round and round and round in my head. And I just, I wanted to die basically because I just had enough of this stuck record. And so for me, I needed something to distract me from those kind of obsessive thoughts. And for me, it was obsessing about nature and getting really into plants and everyone's different. Lots of people listen this will think well you know how on earth do you find plants that interesting and I do think they're much more interesting than most people give them credit but other people will find other sort of obsessions but for me it was learning to identify the flowers that I found growing you know just in the street outside my house or in nature reserves and then getting really excited about some of the more unusual and rare species of wildflowers that we have in this country so a lot of people won't know that we have around 52 species of orchids that grow wild in this country i think most people think of orchids as those plants that you buy from the supermarket that you then kill or before you throw them out but actually we have orchids that grow in bogs we have bees we have a really really beautiful rare native orchid called the lady's slipper orchid which has got bright yellow petals and sort of claret colored sepals around it and it doesn't look like it should be a real flower let alone native to the british isles and looking for these flowers and learning about how they've evolved to mimic insects just started to distract me from the bad thoughts and it gave me a reason to want to be there the next day a very simple reason that didn't involve the sort of complications of, of family and friends and relationships where of course you want to stay alive for the people you love but you also feel desperately as though you're letting those people down whereas plants you know they don't really care whether you're there or not so it's a very simple thing to think, well, I've seen a fly orchid. I'd love to see a bee orchid now. And where can I find this? And start looking at maps and start planning your next journey. And before you know it, you'll start to look forward to, to the future in a very simple way. I mean, you use the word, I'd not heard this word until I read it in the book, orchid delirium, <laughs> which is a sort of how the Victorians nearly killed off all our orchids. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very similar to tulip fever, which people are a little bit more familiar with there's something about certain plants which just sends people mad and orchids a lot of people can understand the kind of exotic appeal of orchids the victorians loved them to death and dug up so many of them that the lady slipper orchid for instance was declared extinct until one surviving specimen was found a couple of decades later in the yorkshire dales and people are still so obsessed with orchids now that that remaining native plant 
is still under 24-hour surveillance and has its own warden and a fence that you can't get through to stop people from digging it up. And similarly, I've got a lot of friends who are botanists, either professionally or, or on an amateur level, and they've noticed recently that people have started digging up orchids from sites again, which is illegal and also really stupid because orchids, they have quite complex fungal relationships, which is, makes me sound like Alan Partridge saying that, but <laughs> they do need a certain fungus in the soil to be able to survive. So if you dig them up, they're highly unlikely to thrive in your garden, as well as the fact that you're breaking the law. But, but there is something that drives people a bit mad about these plants. And while I wasn't planning to go around digging up any plants or sort of give in to the bad sides of this obsession, I, I did find obsessing about them incredibly useful for distracting me from, from some of my own bad thoughts. And you talk in the book about, you You know, you've always worked with words and words are important to you. How did you, do, I mean, have you got a journal where you document the orchids and you write that, you know, did you sort of describe where they were? And there was a sort of bit in the book where you're describing all the flowers within a mile of your home. But yeah. Tell me about orchids in particular. Well, for me, it's, it's photography, actually. So I really like taking pictures of plants and trying to get the, the best picture possible of those plants. I've got a very nice camera that helps me do that as well. And then I really like, I guess you could call it showing off or sharing, depending on <laughs> how deep or kind of view you take of me. I, I like sharing those pictures with other people online and, you know, saying that this is the field of green winged orchids I found today. And doesn't it look beautiful because it's basically turned the grass purple with flowers. And I find that incredibly satisfying. And I suppose it's not dissimilar, actually, to my love of writing and the fact that I've made that my living. It's about sharing things you've known and seen with other people and getting a satisfaction from them delighting in that knowledge and that experience too and photography does the same thing and obviously you know as, as you get better at it you can also show off your techniques as well I think the most exciting photo I've ever taken and this is this is really sad is I went orchid hunting with a friend of mine who is a professional botanist and we saw a fly orchid flowering in these woods in Kent and then we saw the wasp that it has evolved to attract land on it. And these orchids have evolved to look, smell and feel like a virgin female digger wasps. And so the male digger wasp thinks he's found a sexy lady, basically, and lands on it and starts trying to have sex with the flower. No and way. We, we saw this wasp doing this. It's called pseudocopulation and it's incredibly rare. It was the nerdiest moment of my life. I've been late and I standing in a woodland going, oh my God, I can't believe I've just seen some pseudocopulation. But we photographed it. And uh, yeah, that's, I think, my proudest photo is of this poor frustrated male wasp having a go on flower. <laughs> first of, uh, well, first of all, I want to know when you learned that fact. Was that your botanist friend told you or have you, yeah. are, there, are there books written about this? Yeah, it was actually, it was a friend who I was orchid hunting with that day. It's a, a chap called Leif Sweden, and he's written a book called The Orchid Hunter. He's even nerdier than I am. He's a lovely guy. He spent his gap year after school before university looking for all the species of orchids that grow in this country and trying to see them all in one summer. So he's zigzagging across the British Isles to see all of them. And it's a sort of coming of age book in that he falls in love with someone halfway through the book and he gets into a few scrapes trying to learn to drive and so on. And that was the book that really taught me about the diversity and the cunningness of British orchids as well. And I think I mentioned it in my book because I, I was reading it for review for The Spectator 
and I was reading it whilst at Tory party conference. And it was the year after I'd had my mental breakdown, which was at the previous Tory party conference. So I was very anxious about being at this event because I thought I'm going to get sick again. And I was reading this book in my spare time sort of when I got back to my room and it just transported me a bit and just calmed me down. It's a lovely book and I definitely recommend it once you've bought my book. <laughs> I've definitely got yours. <laughs> what interests me in your book as well, it's interesting that you say the need to share lovely images of orchids and or the desire to sort of share good writing and experience because uh, in the book you sort of have a little dig at the sort of hashtag well-being industry and the sort of idea that on social media there's all sorts of celebrities dispensing advice I mean what about social media social media to me was the perfect way you could express yourself to people with whom you cared about or were interested in about a decade ago it doesn't quite seem to have worked out that way in reality, but certainly for people in public life. Tell me about social media and your journey back. Yeah, so I, I've got two Twitter accounts, and one is my political Twitter account where I post about what's going on at Treasury questions in the House of Commons, and the other one is me posting pictures of herons. And I decided to set up a separate nature account because I thought the political people might get a bit frustrated with a stream of orchids when they're trying to find out what Boris Johnson said at a press conference. But it's also become a bit of a refuge because I'll log into political Twitter and there'll be you know people having a 52-part Twitter spat for the whole of a Sunday afternoon over something that they're never going to change one another's mind on. And then I'll go onto my nature Twitter and People will be being somebody who's just seen a, a plant that they don't, can't identify or someone else will be delighted they've seen a, a bee eater, which is a really beautiful type of bird flying into nature reserve. And the difference in people's demeanour between the two worlds is quite striking, I have to say. I bet it's striking. But <laughs> never has the political world needed to see more pictures of orchids than right now. <laughs> Start posting more heron pictures. And oh, I think you definitely now. Sorry, my baby just knocked the microphone over. Oh, it's a baby woken up. <laughs> no, he's just gesticulating in his sleep. <laughs> he's a discussion of orchids as well. <laughs> and how's the baby coping with a mum that's working at home doing weird things like podcasts? I mean, this is a world the baby's going to get used to, I guess. I think what he'll find harder is having a mum who's completely obsessed with plants. I've got one of those baby carriers. I had him strapped my, around my waist earlier while I was doing the compost heap and then weeding the garden. I think that his rebellion when he grows up is he's going to become a concrete manufacturer. <laughs> and under lockdown, are you growing more in the garden? Are you growing more veg or is it, have you always had a veg patch? Yeah, I've always had a veg patch. The garden's definitely looking better than it ever has because I've, I've had more time to, to weed it and to sort of fuss over it. It's funny the the friends of mine who I've spoken to who have really started gardening earnestly for the first time because of lockdown, because they've just needed something to get them out of the house, to occupy their minds. And I know that for a lot of people, lockdown isn't this wonderful opportunity to do lots more gardening and, you know, develop a new hobby because they are homeschooling their children while while also trying to do their work. But one of the things I have noticed is the number of families in my local who are clearly just trying to get some outdoor space. It used to be the case that my local woodland just had dog walkers in it, but now there are parents with their children on bikes and children building camps and little patterns uh, being made out of twigs. You can you can hear my baby stirring quite a bit now. <laughs> it's a lovely sound. <laughs> yeah, those little newborn noises are lovely, aren't they? But yes, yeah, so um, I think even people who felt 
rushed off their feet and that there is sort of no end to the housework and the childcare have found solace in getting outside with those children and it's sort of trying to take a break and even just look out of the window at trees and so on. I think a lot of people have realised how much nature is keeping them going at the moment. I live on the edge of the wild forest now and um, I think if I couldn't walk in the forest now, I would be feeling really low. Yeah. And the other thing that gets me through, you talk about these little things. I follow the ospreys on the Woodland Trust website. Oh, amazing. And they've had three osprey chicks hatch in the last week and a half. And it's the last thing I see before I go to sleep at night. Are these oh, this massive osprey nest. I recommend it. I'll send you the link after this. Yeah, do. Also, there is quite a lot of evidence that it helps you regenerate your mind as well. There's this theory called attention restoration theory which doesn't just apply to actually being in nature, but also to looking at pictures of nature and it allowing our minds to relax and then to retune so that we can get back to work and pay better attention and get more work done afterwards. I didn't know that. And I wish I had 20 years ago when it would have mattered when I was in Parliament. There's a funny line in the book where you say that, that a politician said to you, you're the only person he's ever said you need to get out less to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do have quite a lot of hobbies as a result of my mental illness. After <laughs> and one of them, which I'm sharing with you in, your, in the last months before I left, gave me great comfort is you love riding your bike. Yeah. Are you going to take the baby on the bike? Yeah, I think I might wait a few months before uh, before I do that. But um, yeah, I can't wait to get back on my bike. And you know that feeling of sort of freedom and weird kind of control that you get when you're on your bike. That feeling when the sort of pedals are dancing under your feet and you're not necessarily going that fast, but you just feel as though you're in command of yourself and your body and your surroundings. And it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? And how much you see from the bike as well. It's so liberating. And the difference between me when I've cycled home from Parliament and when I've caught the train home, I'm normally knackered when I've caught the train home and I just want to lie on the sofa and eat crisps. And When I've cycled home, even though it's a 10-mile cycle, yeah, physically I'm a bit tired, but mentally I feel so much more alert and positive about things. It's as though I've filed everything from work away as I've cycled home, even through London, which can be, you know, can have its stresses at times. One of the things I've done in the last two months, I took a 20-hour course with Amsterdam University called Cycling in the City, which is basically looking at the history of how Amsterdam became the cycle capital of the world and what we can do in urban planning. And you're right about cycling. It's not just like a slower type of car. It's not just to get you from A to B. It might be that it's like being a slightly quicker pedestrian in that you're in the moment, you're taking in the urban environment around with you, Sometimes you choose to go a longer route if it's a more scenic route. And I think it's when I realised that I was taking longer routes because I was enjoying the journey that I realised I understood cycling. It took me a bit of time to get there. And there's a massive opportunity in this lockdown, isn't there? All these temporary cycle lanes that are going up in the cities. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could give everyone the joy of cycling in the way that, you know, we've managed to find that? Absolutely. And I think some of the barriers to people commuting by bike, such as, you know, before I started commuting by bike, I thought that I'd find it utterly terrifying and that I'd sort of have near misses every day. And it's not really like that because London's cycling infrastructure has already improved hugely. But there are still, you know, I'm sure you found this when you're cycling along, cycle lanes which suddenly turn into sort of 
the width of a gutter at a moment. Yeah. And yeah. then suddenly the cycle lane has disappeared and you're at a roundabout. You think, well, what was the point of that cycle lane that protected me on a straight road when I have absolutely no protection at this really busy roundabout? We could do so much more. And people who aren't prepared to, you know, cycle around that roundabout at the moment would benefit hugely. And, you know, you'd see the drop in air pollution and you'd also see, I think, a, an improvement in people's quality of life because the commute at the moment for most people is staring out of a train window feeling knackered as opposed to, you know, when I'm commuting to and from Parliament, it's two hours a day on my bike. I don't need to think about going to the gym because I've already done it before I even get into work. I've had my hours exercise. So it's a very efficient way of getting into work. It's like, you know, taking the gym with you on the train, but more fun. I feel slightly guilty because I've got a little electric bike, you know, because I'm a guy of a certain age. I think the goal of cycling is to get people to work wearing the same clothes they can work in, which means they need a little bit of a help uphill so they don't have to have a shower when they get into the office. Yeah, we're very lucky in the Commons, actually, because we do have a shower. But yeah, for most people, they don't have showers at work. And so the idea of arriving, I certainly wouldn't cycle in if I couldn't shower because my colleagues wouldn't want to speak to me. <laughs> yeah, you've got the tiny little rooms in the Commons. Still. Yes. I don't miss any of that. <laughs> you probably don't miss the mouse infestation and all the other sort of slightly dysfunctional things about Parliament. <laughs> yeah, although they're about to move out of Parliament, aren't they? That's going to be an interesting exercise. Have the lobby journalists been told where they're going to go? I don't think we have. We've we've seen images of what the press gallery in Parliament would look like, but in terms of our offices, and it's something that we get very anxious about because we're worried that we'll never be allowed back in and the MPs will say, oh, we want this space, get out, and you have to be based across the road permanently or something like that, which, which we're anxious about. But I'm anxious about losing the most secure cycle parking in the world because, you know, there's something about men walking around with machine guns that used to put bike thieves off and I've never had my bike stolen at work put it that way but in your political writing you I mean you're a tough political writer but you're actually generous to politicians in your other books aren't you I mean at least you're a journalist who knows how hard politicians work or maybe <laughs> I don't want to praise you too much because that would um, obviously ruin your credibility <laughs> exactly I was going to say stop <laughs> not being mean to me well you know you're all people and I think one of the things that has taught me a lot was I used to be quite religious and I used to be quite involved in churches and one of the things you learn from being in a church is that even an institution that's supposed to be really good can be really messed up with lots of people who are intending to do good things but who end up making a mess of things you know that it's the same as teachers saying that schools would be perfect if they didn't have any kids in them and <laughs> politics would work much better if it didn't have normal you know real people in it and you know, everyone's got their character flaws, their hang-ups, their blind spots. And so I think approaching politics from that perspective, you know, there are some awful people in politics, but I'd say by and large, most people came in wanting to make a positive difference. Whether they end up achieving that is another matter. But having that starting point, I think, makes it more interesting because you then genuinely work out what's going wrong as opposed to just accusing people of being evil, which is reductive and quite lazy, I think. The best advice Dennis Skinner ever gave me, which both of us probably ignored more often than not, is (laughs) never question the motive of your opponent. And if you start off with that, you can have a better conversation, can't you? But you've got to work harder at winning an argument. Yeah, and that was that's interesting because when I started out as a journalist back in 2009, I remember 
talking to somebody in the housing world, which was the, the world I started covering first. And they said, look, my biggest piece of advice to you is that most things that go wrong are cock up, not conspiracy. That's true. You get much further by writing up stories on that basis. And yes, there's often a cover up afterwards, but people don't set out to do bad things generally. And that has helped me quite a lot because assuming that someone's being evil often means you miss the point of, of the mistake they're making. I think that's a good way to end this. Isabel, it is a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And you've really been on quite a jagged edge journey in the last few years, but I can hear that baby gurgling in the background. I, <laughs> I got a mental picture of the country's orchids in my head. You have brought cheer to my afternoon. Oh, and oh. I love your writing. So I'm going to push this book as hard as I can because I think it's going to, I think a lot of people can learn from it. Thank you. Thank you. You probably also hear my dogs having a fight in the background now as well. Boys, stop it. (laughs) I felt very moved talking to Isabel about her struggle with mental health and really appreciate what courage it must have taken for her to start her journey through anxiety, but also to have the skill and the craft and the wherewithal to actually talk about that journey and be very candid about her anxiety in a way that I think will give real confidence to others that they too can transform their mental health. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.